Hello and welcome back to our Additive Snack mini-series, The Future of Energy. Now, for episode two out of our three-part series. Additive Snack is the AM podcast dedicated, created, and streamed to support you on your additive manufacturing journey with inspiring personalities, stimulating education, and compelling discussions on cutting-edge technologies. And I'm your host, Fabian Alafeld, a member of the award-winning consulting, engineering, and education team named Additive Minds here at EOS in North America. If you remember, on our first episode of the Additive Snack miniseries on the future of energy, we discussed how gas turbines and hydrogen from electrolysis together will play a crucial role in transitioning into a future of clean energy. But they can't be relied on to pull all the weight alone. Renewable energies and smart carbon capture technologies also need to be a part of the solution. And in this second episode, we're taking a deeper look at two technologies, wind turbines and carbon capture and utilization from landfills. Both leverage additive manufacturing at different levels and will have significant impact on how we produce and consume energy. And we're starting with wind. Everybody has seen a wind turbine. And if you've seen one, there's a good chance that you've seen a Vestas wind turbine. And if you've seen a Vestas wind turbine, you might have seen additive manufacturer parts that you didn't even know existed. To tell us more about wind and additive manufacturing, I've invited Jeremy Haidt, the principal engineer and lead specialist for additive manufacturing and advanced concepts at Vestas. Jeremy is a true multidisciplinary engineer who is continuously reshaping the wind industry through additive manufacturing. And I'm excited to have him on the show today. Jeremy, thanks so much for being on Additive Snack with us. Fabian, thanks so much for having me. So, Jeremy, Vestas is the global leader in wind turbines. And uh, that is why I'm so excited to talk to you about additive manufacturing. But before we dive that deep into the technology, tell us a bit about your company and also yourself. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so Vestas, um, it's a, it's a pretty old company. It got some modest uh, beginnings. Uh, it's a Danish company. Uh, started in in Lem on the on the west coast of Denmark in about 1898, and it started off as a blacksmith shop. Um, from there, it kind of evolved. You know, uh, uh, tough times called for tough measures and uh, dynamic approaches. So, in the mid 40s, after you know, shortly after World War II, they started making household appliances. Uh, it wasn't until about 1980 mm. that we actually went into, you know, full mass production of wind turbines, um, obviously much, much smaller than, you know, what you see on the highways and on barges today. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to uh, uh, 2012, that was one of our key milestones where we hit 50 gigawatts of installed capacity. Um, and to put that into perspective, wow. that's, you know, 50,000 kilowatts of power. <clears throat> um we're a global company. Um, you know, again, we're based out of Denmark. I personally am based in uh, Colorado in the United States. Um, we are literally present in every single continent on the world, with the exception of Antarctica. Uh, we have about 26 uh, Vestas branded manufacturing facilities or well, general facilities around the world, and we employ close to 30,000 people. Uh, we shipped about 19, 19 gigawatts of power in 2021 alone. Um, and, and to give some some idea cool. of just the scale of some of these things, you know, most of what people see are the onshore, right? The ones on the trains and the trucks. Uh, but we also um, are mm -hmm. heavily invested in the offshore market. And with that one, we are actually the leader with the largest, uh, largest offshore platform turbine with a, a swept diameter of close to 500,000 square feet. 
so so very very big machinery <clears throat> a little bit about myself and how i kind of tie into the organization so um I'm the uh, senior principal engineer and lead specialist uh, in, in emerging technologies, specifically um, investigating and applying the technologies of additive manufacturing, uh, applied robotics, mm -hmm. and, and other, other, some, some other facets of Industry 4.0. But largely, my primary focus is additive manufacturing. That is a, a very interesting story from Danish household appliances to the largest uh, wind turbines uh, that that you can imagine. I mean, these things are huge. And uh, if we if we all know additive manufacturing, or for those who know additive manufacturing, there's still some limitations in size when it comes to printing. How can additive manufacturing play a role for these massive products? Well, kind of what we've done is we've we've take this as a kind of a three pillar or three phase approach. Um, so right, just like every manufacturer, um, you know, we we experience all the same angst and and pain points of everybody else, right? Whether it be oil and gas, the medical industry, automotive, you know, at the end of the day, we're producing a machine, right? A product um, that we're shipping into a field mm -hmm. and, and installing, and these things are expected to last, you know, in excess of twenty five years. Uh, many of them are running for 30 plus years. Um, so with that, right, we, we need to be more creative, more agile in our approach. And so kind of the rub with that is, you know, we need to embrace uh, these newer technologies and digitizing our manufacturing processes. Um, you know, so getting a little bit into the depths of it, you know, speaking specifically to phase one, right, we, we kind of targeted that as our, our low hanging fruit, right? What is a perfect entry point for additive as a viable technology that proves an ROI, right? That can demonstrate that agility and that cost savings and all the other inherent benefits with the technology. So with that, you know, largely we were targeting, um, you know, a lot of the same that many people start off their venture with additive. Uh, you know, jigs and fixtures, hand tools, um, and calibration, mm -hmm. uh, go-no-go gauges, um, OEM spare part replacements for some of our A-level a critical machinery. Um, and, you know, with that, uh, you know, it, it's, been a, it's been a little bit of a long road because we are a dynamic company. We produce a lot of different components that goes into the grander architecture. Uh, but, you know, it's presented so many opportunities um, and, and it's we've been able to truly demonstrate just what we can do with this, um, you, know, you know, and with that, it was almost perfect timing coming straight out of COVID. And then, you know, all the issues with, uh, you know, global supply chain with the Suez Canal and, you know, all of those things that mm -hmm. affected everybody else. We were able to pivot uh, in a big way and vertically integrate some of those manufacturing endeavors that normally we would have outsourced because we already had this program well on its way. So um, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned supply chain challenges uh, and uh, that you, you approach additive manufacturing from, from a perspective of identifying those low-hanging fruits. Um, can you feel the impact of additive manufacturing on your supply chain today, that you are more agile than, than some other organizations who have not implemented additive manufacturing? Absolutely. Um, I, and I would say, especially compared to where we were before the program was initiated, um, you know, now the the traffic on, on our DDM, the program is called DDM or direct digital manufacturing. 
the uh, the traffic that we're seeing on these networked, you know, composite desktop 3D printers has increased. You know, now these things are running at almost 90% um, utilization. Uh, where, you know, in the early days, wow. a lot of that process would have been largely manual, right? Where our, we maintain a central central engineering control model, right? M largely based out of Denmark, but we have engineering offices elsewhere also. Uh, so, you know, it's, the, it's that typical, uh, you know, game of telephone where you have an engineer in another country that designs a solution. They provide the, you know, the end using factory with detailed drawing package, right? And then it's up to them to outsource the manufacturing, right? And we experience this three weeks, sometimes up to two month delay before we can actually implement a control that's critical to quality or critical to manufacturing. Uh, with this program, you know, we saw the effects almost immediately because these guys can design the solution, do real-time analysis, uh, you know, have real-time mechanical design reviews, and then immediately push that over to the printer that is physically on site. And then the guys have it there for them very next day, you know. So in terms of agility and turnaround, especially in the cases of NPI, you know, new product introduction, um, it's been massive. The impact has been enormous. And, and again, this is just getting our toes wet with uh, how we're leveraging the technology. Yeah, the perfect example for distributed and on-demand manufacturing. So you mentioned that's that's phase one. Uh, what's what's next? Yeah, so so moving into phase two, that's uh, that's getting more into our advanced applications. Um, so that we're we're looking into more exotic or more high-end, uh, you know, process physics types. You know, the the DEDs and the uh, LPBFs and, and other uh, technologies like that. And, and for that, we're largely targeting, you know, drivetrain and electrical components, um, you know, our actual product architecture. Um, you know, phase one was largely around how do we support our manufacturing processes as is in a more agile way. And phase two is how do we directly, mm -hmm. uh, directly impact our actual, you know, material and bill of materials that's, you know, integrated into our product architecture. Um, and where we think we're going to have the biggest impact by far is on our legacy parts. Um, you know, because we've had, uh, you know, multiple iterations of turbine types and flavors over the, you know, last, uh, you know, 40, 50 years. Um, many of those parts, right, those, those parts were not digitized back in the day. There were no, you know, solid models or anything like that that, you know, could be plugged into a CAM software to be generated on subtractive processes. Um, so what we're working through now is, you know, basically, uh, you know, reconciling all of those 2D drawings into 3D renderings so that we can print them on demand, right? Uh, in many cases, some of those suppliers that used to make those uh, subcomponents for us are either out of business or, you know, they've been absorbed by larger companies and we're no longer doing business with them. So that supply chain has definitely broken down. Um, so that's where we can shore that back up with phase two. Super interesting. I mean, in, in phase one, we talked about how, how COVID kind of throw you a curveball and you had to adapt quickly to to immediate supply chain challenges, but it sounds like in in this current phase, you're now proactively approaching uh, a a simplification of your supply chain through additive manufacturing. Absolutely, absolutely, and I can, I gotta say the timing couldn't have been. I mean, it was it was terrible for you know the global community, but 
it was very uh, fortunate for for us in the program and our our goals and in, in initiative because we had started this venture some time before COVID, but COVID really, you know, it kind of pulled the veil away from just how much this could benefit the organization if it was truly embraced and invested in. So, okay, okay, no, that's 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 super interesting to hear, and uh, we feel a lot of other organizations were awakened by COVID within their their approach to additive yeah. manufacturing. And you mentioned that you're currently in phase two, and uh, I'm sure you also have some future plans. Uh, are there some other phases or next steps that you're, that you're looking into implementing additive manufacturing? Yeah, yeah. So we we've got the final the final pillar or the final phase, if you will, and that's uh that's you know full uh full product or full um uh module uh construction with additive technologies. Um so again, if you kind of break down the the fundamental components of our machinery, you know, we have a tower, we have a nacelle, which is the generator and controls and all the intelligence, and then we have what's called wind capture, which are the large composite blades. Um, so those three are kind of in their own individual buckets. And what we're looking to do is target, um, you know, more um, meso and macro scalable uh, additive manufacturing technologies and even potentially things that can be deployed to the field for in situ manufacturing or in situation manufacturing directly on the wind farm. Um, so mobilized manufacturing, wow. if you will. Yeah, that must be a game changer. It, it will certainly be absolutely, um, you know, and that's that's kind of what we're trying to do. We're trying to be as forward thinking as we possibly can be. Some of the technologies aren't there yet, but we're doing our best to invest and uh, support, you know, those those companies that are developing those technologies so that we can be, you know, kind of the, the first to really benefit from them. That's perfect. And uh, there's a study out by Deloitte uh, that was released during COVID that highlighted that especially in the fourth industrial revolution, the first mover advantage is very important to play. It's very difficult to follow competition that already has invested a lot into those new technologies because they're difficult to implement and it takes a lot of time to implement these technologies. So it's very good to hear that you guys are pushing towards that first mover advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, so let's talk about uh, that first mover advantage. And um, we, we, we talked uh, already, and you've, you've mentioned to me that you use a broad spectrum of additive manufacturing technologies from, from FDM and CFF to, to cold spray. Um, let's talk about some specific applications that you're currently using additive manufacturing for or are planning on using additive manufacturing for. Can you talk about a few specifics? Yeah, certainly. So again, you know, starting kind of on the the phase one uh, approach, you know, we're we're largely working with uh, composite, you know, desktop systems. Uh, again, you know, globally networked things with onboard uh, telemetry and in process monitoring, um, so we can assure you know the R and R aspect of what we're planning to deliver. Um, in in phase two, when we're talking subcomponents, you know, we're talking uh, laser powder bed fusion, uh, potentially EBM. Um, we have actually, even in the past, we've leveraged technologies like um, 
uh, multi-jet fusion um, for bridge bridge tooling because um, there are you know polymer uh, polymer composite or components that go into our blade product specifically. Uh, that was huge for us to take advantage of that while our you know our series production injection molding companies were tooling up and bringing things online to support NPI. We were able to actually start ahead of schedule because we were able to bridge that gap using you know. Uh, advanced fast uh, polymer uh, polymer material jetting um, you know and then when we start talking uh, you know like large larger architectures um, and uh, monolithic structures you know uh, for the composite blades you know glass for, uh, glass fiber reinforced composites you know we're we're looking at and actually developing technologies for in situ advanced fiber 3d printing or AFP with 3d printing integrated uh, concretious 3D printing for tower bases. Um, again, that's that mobilized manufacturing model. And uh, again, you know, speaking mm -hmm. to drivetrain components and, and some of the the standards, right? Um, as well as in situ repairs. That's another one that I think is really important. You know, using mobilized DED for repair of drivetrain components while they're up tower, rather than taking a turbine out of service. Um, and then, of course, you know, taking full advantage of the technology and the advanced tools that are available, you know, like algorithmic engineering and generative design and topology optimization, looking into, you know, how can we condense things like heat exchangers or fluid handling manifolds and things like that. So, Very interesting. And I think it's it's very good to hear that you're also really leveraging the, the broad technologies that are out there. For, for various different uh, types of applications. And that'd be interesting to to also talk about about materials briefly. So especially uh, when we talk about polymer fusion, there's such a vast selection of materials out there. And I'd be curious to hear what, what materials are you looking into uh, that can really make a difference for, for your company? Yeah, definitely. I would say some of the big hitters again, you know, because of the nature of our product, right? We're uh, uh, electrical or, or generator infrastructure, if you will. Um, so you can imagine um, these mm -hmm. giant generators, we, we use a lot of conductive substrates. Uh, so copper and tungsten are really, really on the, you know, kind of high on the, the list of uh, priorities. Uh, but, you know, also things in, in, in ventures to, to lightweight and optimize better uh, some of the subcomponent groups. So, you know, obviously titanium. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to like drivetrain and, and other things within the, uh, the hub and assembly like that, we're looking at conventional steels, tool steels, you know, your 17, P, uh, four pH, uh, stainlesses, and then of course, metal matrix composites, um, again, for the lightweighting advantages, as well as the ablative resistance. Okay. Okay. So I mean, we talked about so many applications right now and about so many use cases and, we, we mentioned how additive manufacturing today is helping to secure your business, is helping you to secure also availability of equipment. But there, there's a lot of work to be done still in the energy industry. And uh, the whole energy industry and us as humanity are in a transition to a more renewable future. Can additive manufacturing have an impact on that? On that? And what's the, what's the long-term impact that we can expect? You know, I think over over enough time and maturity, I think there's going to be three major verticals. Uh, one will be agility, right? So we'll be able to respond and 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 turn over better solutions faster, right? Uh, so that'll that'll reduce our time to market. 
that'll get turbines out in the field and up and operational much faster because we're vertically integrating these manufacturing processes. Uh, the second is cost, right? The, you, mm -hmm. know, um, you know, we've largely been able to stay cost competitive with other forms of, of energy, um, you know, uh, fossil fuel energies, and we've actually dipped under the total cost per, per megawatt. Uh, but, you know, we want to keep that trend on the downward, right? We want to keep being as competitive as possible and driving the price of that energy down. So, you know, by reducing our, our logistical uh, uh, costs and considerations, our inventory overhead, um, and as well as our, our uh, indirect overhead, right, through uh, managing suppliers and managing that supply chain, that's going to really help to drive costs down quite a bit. And then the third, and, and not to be forgotten, is sustainability. You know, again, we, we are in the market of green energy uh, production. And, you know, when you start talking about digitized inventory, you know, there's a lot of advantages that open up. You know, we can reduce things like total embodied energy and carbon um, in the production of, you know, any single one component. Um, there's also opportunity to domesticate, you know, domesticate raw material supply, right? So we're not shipping products from one side of the globe to the other. We can ship the entire manufacturing process and then have raw materials to feed that process. Right, which is contributing to our our overall, you know, uh, goals um, and and governance to to decarbonize our supply chain and our manufacturing processes. So, so yeah, yeah. That I mean that that's something we discussed earlier, right? Localized and on demand manufacturing is 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 of more and more interest, not only to organizations but also to to governments. Right. I mean, there's there's a big push by, yep. by the U.S. government uh, called AM Forward that is also trying to bring manufacturing back to the United States, uh, which has uh, various benefits. One of them being a reduced uh, reduced carbon footprint. Also, uh, I I have one more question, which is, can can additive manufacturing also support new products and new types of wind turbines uh, through uh, specific geometries, through becoming more efficient, as we discussed earlier with, with heat exchangers. Is there a, a even larger contributor on the product level as well? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, most definitely. You know, and uh, when we when we started, you know, when we were talking about, uh, you know, the, the third pillar, if you will, the, the product level architecture, um, that's that's a big area that mm -hmm. we're looking into is specifically in the wind capture and the composite blade structures. Um, as you can imagine, you know, the blades are they're made out of composite materials so that we can make them as light. Uh, you know, the strength to weight ratio is as best as we can get it. Uh, but, you know, with it again, going back to the some of the more advanced tools that you can only really access using additive technologies, things like, you know, GD and topological optimization and algorithmic engineering applications. Um, you know, there's there's a huge potential for us to be able to, you know, lightweight the product so you get more life life cycle out of it, right? Um, it's less wear and tear and, and resonance that's, you know, pushing back through our drivetrain so you could potentially get more life cycle out of it uh, in between breakdowns or, um, and the same goes for drivetrain, right? And that, that trickles back down to, you know, cost and logistics, you know, because you ship by tons. So if we can lightweight things, you know, we can reduce the cost of uh, not just manufacturing, but also of the logistical aspects of it. Um, so yeah, there's it, there's a massive trickle back effect, and and that's definitely the way moving forward is you know starting off with the DFAM mindset ahead of NPI, right? 
rather than being reactive to products coming out, we're trying to be proactive, working in lockstep so that new products are designed with additive as one of the tools in the toolbox. So Jeremy, you mentioned the trickle-down effect. Can you talk about an additive manufacturing part that through its redesign had a effect on the whole system downstream? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in what is, uh, you know, tens of thousands of parts, it's in a bill of materials for one of our machines. Um, one, one part in particular is kind of a good, uh, good case study and I'll show it and try to describe it, but this is uh, it's a solid copper. Um, and you can see, uh, for those of you who can't see, right, it's got kind of like an airfoil design to it. And this is, uh, it's part of our down conduction or lightning conduction system. Uh, right, and it's it's there to protect our composite blades from lightning strikes because they do get struck by lightning fairly often. Um, so that's tied into a, a proprietary network of systems that takes the lightning, you know, the strike down to earth ground. Um, so this, as you can imagine, you know, uh, again speaking to how large these these things are, um, you know, some of uh, the smaller ones are you know 54 to 64 meters in length. Uh, that's roughly you know 210 feet uh, to to convert that, and then again I I spoke to the very big ones, the big offshore ones with you know almost half a million square feet in swept diameter. Uh, so you can imagine the amount of moment of inertia right that's out there at the very tip, um, right? Yeah. It's a gigantic lever spinning yeah. at about 210 miles an hour, um, and these these things are they work in concert, right? There's three blades per rotor, so they all have to be fairly well balanced. Well. Uh, just what we were able to do with this by optimizing some levels of topology through, you know, CFD and some uh, instantaneous thermal analysis, um, as well as just the, some of the inherent process physics of additive of being able to, you know, put a continuous outer shell with uh, voiding internal, you know, lattice structures on the interior. We were able to reduce the weight of this, and this is printed out of the same exact material that we normally get it made out of oxygen-free copper. Uh, we were able to reduce the total mass uh, mass moment at the tip of every blade by 33.5 kilograms per square meter. Uh, so speaking to trickle-down effects, right, um, that means that because we can reduce that moment of inertia, we can then balance to a lesser uh, a lesser specification, or we can take advantage of that and up our tip speed, which means we're putting out more power. Um, or we can keep it as is, but then all of that equates to less reverberation and less wear and tear on our drivetrain downstream. Uh, so just 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 as one example, um, that that one is a good one to demonstrate just how much inherent benefits we can get out of the technology. What a perfect example of additive manufacturing having such a big impact on the whole system. Can you foresee other applications also having a similar effect on the energy output in the end of your of your wind turbines? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it uh, it, it it comes down to a lot of the same physics uh, fundamentals as you know with aircraft and, and automotive and, and and any other you know kinematic system or machine. Right? Is drag is wasted energy. Um, so if we can reduce weight in any respect, or we can optimize the material properties on a microstructural level, right down to the voxel, um, and we can we can you know get more exotic geometries that are better optimized for performance, or better materials that are optimized for performance. Again, speaking to metal matrix composites, where not only can we lightweight through internal structures and the general composition, but we can actually get better wear 
because of the natural ablative resistant properties of you know composite uh, metal matrices. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's there's absolutely uh, no limit. I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg right now. Uh, but you know, as we continue to develop and uh, research and apply these technologies, I can guarantee that we're going to see nothing but improvements in our our general product and and timeline to delivery. Yeah, this is just the beginning of additive manufacturing, but it's also just the beginning of our transition into a carbon-free future. So. Seeing those two together and jointly stepping forward is is a really, really impressive and, and reassuring story to, to hear. So thanks so much, Jeremy, for being on Additive Snack with us. And I'm looking forward to see what else Vestas is doing to, uh, to bring us forward. Thank you so much, Fabian. And thank you for having me. So as we just heard, wind is another key component to our future energy production. But what if I told you there's another technology out there that captures emissions and turns them into usable energy. And just as amazing as that sounds, you better believe additive manufacturing plays a huge role. The company I'm talking about here is ReCarbon. ReCarbon transforms carbon dioxide, so CO2, and methane, CH4, into useful products and clean energy. And they use a technology called an emission blade. Sounds crazy? Well, it's not. And we invited Stefan McLelland to explain its use and help us understand how AM is affecting our journey towards clean energy. Stefan is a senior mechanical engineer at ReCarbon and uses additive manufacturing to make this amazing technology work. And that might even be an understatement. He once told me that without AM, they'd be dead in the water. All right, perfect. We are recording. Stefan, right. thanks so much for being on Additive Snack. Thank you so much for having me, Fabian. Good to be here. So, Stefan, let's let's jump right in. ReCarbon is such a cool company. Tell us more about it. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, what do you guys do? <laughs> We're a small Silicon Valley uh, startup. We basically convert uh, greenhouse gases into high energy syngas or synthetic gas, uh, hydrogen mm -hmm. and CO. Um, so, the core of our technology is the emission blade, which uses electricity, converts that into microwaves, uh, which sustains a plasma. We then feed uh, waste gases through this plasma to produce uh, syngas. Incredible, and, and, and still very, very complex. So how, do, how does that work in detail? Yeah, it's, um, it's complex. It's, we try to make a, the system as simple as possible. There's only one moving part in the whole emission blade. Um, but where our, you know, our technological, uh, you know, savvy is, is, is all within the design and, and the way of handling this, this gas that's, you know, it's, it's plasma, it's hotter than the surface of the sun. And the gas is something like 2000 degrees C coming out and we get the CO2 and methane and convert that into high energy syngas, uh, yeah, through a uh, plasma. Okay. And I mean that is that is such a unique process that I have not heard of uh, from from any other organization. How how close are you guys to a commercial system? We are still in the pilot phase. We're very close to a commercial system. Uh, we're working on the commercial system uh, as we speak. Um, we have been in Tennessee for the past few months, uh, running a pilot system uh, with which consists of uh, eight of our units of our technology which we call emission blades mm -hmm. um we've been running eight of them for the past mm, 60 some days 
um, continuously, twenty four seven, and that's been going really smoothly. Yeah, we're we're right around the corner from a commercial system. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned twenty four seven. Do you actually have a almost hundred percent uptime? It's very high. It's something like ninety nine, and point some you know point some numbers. Uh, it's it's been we've been very happy with how stable the system has been running. Um, it's a it's a complex system. We've got a feed gas skid, a scrubber system, um, and so there's a lot of it's a it's a commercial it's a very small you know commercial type plant. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things can go wrong. Um, in terms of our process and our technology, we've been really happy with what's been going on with that and the uh, the uptime of it. Okay. So you mentioned you take methane, so CH4, yeah, with some CO2 and oxygen, and you turn it into hydrogen and carbon monoxide. How does that work exactly? Can you take us through the details of your process as much <laughs> as you can talk about it, of course? Absolutely. Fair enough. So essentially, the plasma is a very high efficiency heat source. Um, it's we we take electricity, feed it through our magnetron. Uh, the magnetron is the same piece of technology you'd have in your home uh, in your microwave. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a, a slightly more powerful version, but it's the same thing. It converts micro it converts electricity into microwaves. Uh, those microwaves feed and sustain this plasma that just sort of floats in the in the reactor um and as the this you know almost perfect heat source we filter get or we funnel gas through it uh the gas is then heated to the point where it doesn't combust it just breaks it uh, dissociates its bonds are broken and so now you've just got these free floating molecules and when they recombine this the you've got the you know one carbon and four hydrogen from methane and some oxygen and carbon from the CO2. When they recombine, they recombine as H2 and CO. Incredible, incredible. And I mean, this is not an easy process. Otherwise, we would have a commercial technology already today from some other company. And typically, the more complex technologies get, the more additive manufacturing can play a role in supporting the development of these types of technologies. How does additive support your process and what role does it play? Additive has been a pretty important part for a couple years now since we've been moving from when we first started, we had a one kilowatt, you know, that's, that's your, your everyday household uh, microwave. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just much lower power than what we're using now. So when we're using less power, we had less heat. um, We had less throughput. We were, it was very, very small. It was very good um, proof of concept uh, at, in, at that stage. Since we've been moving to the higher power uh, magnetrons, we've been we've increased our, our throughput thirty odd times and uh, increased the heat capacity in the system. And there's so it's a it's a lot more challenging in terms of you've got this very high energy, very high temperature gas um, through the system. Um, we've also got a lot of flow and you need to be able to, to handle that flow and to manipulate it the way you want it. So additive has been very important for us in terms of it can handle these really complex geometries that we're trying to produce and that we need to produce to, to handle the flow Mm -hmm. and to be able to withstand that, that temperature. So you, you talked about flow paths and flow paths are typically a, a 
a really good use case for additive manufacturing. We see that in in turbine swirlers. We see it in uh, in for gas turbines or aerospace turbines. Um, we we also see it for for other uh, heat and thermal management type applications. What type of application are you referring to when it comes to additive manufacturing? So for us, it's uh, we use the flow path, uh, like the gas flow path, as a way of stabilizing the flow. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I kind of think about it is like if you had a, if you were trying to empty a two liter bottle of 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 water, say, and you just took out the, you know, you flipped it upside down, you opened the top, and you just let it drain. It's going to be very splashy and turbulent flow coming out. Mm-hmm. If you can give it a swirl right before you, you know, open the bottom, it's going to have a nice smooth pattern and go all the way down. And so basically we've got that flow, but we've got um, plasma just sitting in the middle of that being stabilized by the rest of the flow. Okay. So the, the complex geometries that you can achieve through additive spin the gas almost in a way that you have a more constant and uh, designated flow towards your plasma. Is that correct? Right. Yes. Right. So yeah, we use additive to get that that nice stable flow um, to to stabilize the plasma. Okay, and that's kind of what we've been limited. You know, we've been restricted to using additive because with the material choice that we need to have, we need something that can handle the temperatures, handle these really fine geometries. Um, that's not something that can typically be done with standard manufacturing, um, at least not. Not that I've seen so far. Mm-hmm. So we've been using that method uh, as a way to combine these, you know, this really aggressive, uh, uh, thermally, you know, very corrosive environment, very high temperature environment with these really fine uh, geometries um, to allow for, you know, a stable plasma. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned plasma, you mentioned it gets hot. How hot does the plasma get? Sure. So plasma, fourth state of matter, right? You've got, you know, you've got your ice uh, to start. It's very low energy. Then you heat that up. It turns into liquid. Then you heat that up even more. You get gas and you heat that up even more. And now you've got plasma, fourth state of matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's somewhere in the range of uh, 2,000, 4,000 Kelvin. Um, it's hotter than the surface of the sun. It's pretty toasty in the middle. Um, not all the gas goes directly through the center. A lot of it goes you know, around it, just near it. But on average, the the product gas temperature is in the range of two thousand degrees C. That is, that is certainly very hot. How does additive manufacturing support keeping uh, your equipment from melting? We see a lot of interest in thermal management uh, in in other industries. Are you guys also looking into that? Well, we've had to be. Uh, there's a lot of heat to dissipate, a lot of heat to deal with, um, and in that's, that's and it's critical to our process, right? We have these, we have this high temperature gas, and we need to be able to to handle it and manipulate it in the way we we want. Um, being able to uh, have the freedom to choose what geometries uh, to to play around with to to enable us to use to optimize the system that's been critical for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the material selection um, has been critical for us. We need something that can handle these high temperatures um, in a somewhat corrosive environment. And, you know, it's a pretty extreme environment. And 
those two things combined, it really pointed us to additive manufacturing as a, as a path forward. Mm-hmm. And what, what materials are you guys using? Uh, we use a lot of super alloys, a lot of nickel-based alloys, um, Inconel, Hastelloy, uh, that sort of thing. So, Stefan, you talked about a flow path application. And when people see additive manufacture parts, they, you know, it's easy to think that that's an easy process to get to from an idea to a final part. How did you guys get to the point where you are actually using additive manufacturing as a technology to build this highly critical part for your system? Yeah, that was that was a challenge. So initially, you know, you whiteboard it and you and the team are just someone's with a dry erase marker and you're just mocking crazy ideas and there's no wrong answers kind of thing. And from that, Perfect, you whittled yeah. it, we whittled it down and, and got it into, uh, you know, okay, this is reasonable. This is feasible. This makes sense. Um, and we start using SOLIDWORKS and designing something um, and getting that modeled in 3D in, in CAD. Um, and then going from there, getting into uh, creating some drawings and, okay, we, we initially try to pursue, okay, let's get these machined using, you know, our standard machining uh, processes. And it's like, okay, well, you know, you design for that and reach out to vendors and like, oh, the lead time is going to be four to five months, six months. Like, okay, we, we need to rethink this because that's insane. Um, and yeah. so one of our teammates was, you know, like, well, what about additive? What if we, what if we try to make this as, as one part or, you know, we combine those two things or we could do this and, you know, we reached out to people and that, that turnaround turned into, you know, okay, we can have a part for you in two weeks. Okay. Now we're cooking. We can, we can do something with that. Um, and so you, you know, we get an initial mock-up, a little, you know, proof of concept part and see if it, if it works and Hey, it does. And you can do that iterative process much faster with a, with a two week lead time as opposed to a six month lead time. Um, yeah. So it was, you know, rinse and repeat for, for many, many, many times. And, and we end up where we are here and we're pretty happy with it. That's awesome. So you, you're not only using the, the design freedom of additive manufacturing, you're also using the supply chain impact that it has, which means shorter R and D lead times, shorter production lead times, fast and innovative iterations. And now you're at a point where you run a plasma that's hotter than the surface of the sun through additive manufacturing <laughs> as one of the, the technologies that enabled you. Great, great story. So what does that mean for, for other yeah. industries? Where, where, where will we see the impact and where will we see the recarbon logo um, in, in our environments? Uh, so a lot of the, a lot of the emphasis for us has been to get hydrogen into the market and get hydrogen um, get hydrogen in the field and available to customers. So one of the really nice things and the cool things about our product is it's modular. We can set up shop at a any waste site um, and we can be producing uh, hydrogen on a local level as opposed to having a giant, you know, it's made here and we ship it all over the country. We can have it based in, in small cities or, you know, uh, in big cities and anywhere with a <laughs> with a waste site, and we can have that be produced, um, you know, locally, at cutting down on the transport of hydrogen and having everything produced there. So it can, instead of needing to truck around gas all over the country for your gas stations, you can just have your hydrogen made, you know, locally. 
That sounds like the perfect solution. I, I've been reading a lot about hydrogen over the past years and transport and storage is a huge issue, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, even, it's also quite energy intensive and, you know, localized production and consumption at the same time seems like the perfect, perfect solution. And I'm so happy that additive manufacturing can contribute so significantly to your process. So yeah, Stefan, I want to thank you for, for sharing all of your experience with us today. Uh, I learned a lot from it and I'm super excited to hopefully very soon, A, visit one of your sites and <laughs> check out the technology firsthand, but also B, see it commercially available to to anybody out there who has a need for hydrogen. Thanks, Fabian. Good to be here. Appreciate it. What an amazing addition to our discussion on how AM is helping drive a more sustainable future of energy. The role of AM is only becoming more involved as it allows for more organic designs and makes it much easier to repair long-use equipment components. We heard from Jeremy Advestas on how new uses for additive manufacturing are continually emerging within the wind capture capabilities. We also heard from Stefan at ReCarbon. He discussed with us the complex world of carbon capture technologies and how AM has offered the necessary flexibility in creating essential parts and utilizing different materials for ReCarbon's unique approach. Next, join us for the final episode in our mini-series, The Future of Energy, Driven by Additive Manufacturing. In our final episode, we'll hear from the company TAE, who is developing commercial fusion power sources, fit for mass adoption. You will not want to miss this last episode in the series. If you have questions or comments about our podcast, simply need the help in your additive project, or want to learn even more about the world of additive manufacturing, visit our Additive Minds Academy page at store.eos.info or reach out to me directly at fabian.alefeld at eos-na.com. And if you don't want to miss any future episodes, simply subscribe to the Additive Snack podcast in the podcast app of your choice, if you haven't already. So until then, I'm Fabian Alefeld. Thanks for listening and please join us next time on Add of Snack. A special thanks for this episode goes out to all of our guests and to my co-producers Kristen War and Shannon Bauch as well as Dan Pester. 